We're going to read God's Word just now um, before we sing again. And we're reading from the book of Corinthians. We've been working through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we're at chapter 5 this morning um, of the letter to the Corinthians, which is a strange chapter, and it's one that I almost wanted to avoid, but you shouldn't avoid parts of God's Word. And so we're going to wrestle with it a bit this morning. Here's Paul writing to the Corinthians. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I've already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus and the one who's been doing this. So when you're assembled, and when I'm with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand the man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old breaded leaven, with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, because in that case you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside. God will judge those outside. Now, expel this wicked person from among you. Amen. We'll come and wrestle with that shortly, but we're going to sing, first of all, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as I say, if we do, as we do that, if, if parents, if, if, if you're not comfortable, um, feel free to, to use the hall. Let's Let's pray. Father, as we come as Your church to Your Word this morning, we pray that You would speak to us through the fallible human words that are spoken to encourage and to unite us. Amen. Well, I don't know. When I read that to prepare for it, I thought, oh, for goodness sake. Favorite two subjects for a church service, sex and church discipline. How can I fail not to upset somebody? But here we are. The story is fairly clear. We'll come back to the details a little bit later. There is a man in the church who is doing things that are wrong, living an immoral life. And Paul says to the Corinthians, and you're proud and you're boastful. No, throw the man out. It's a shocking chapter, but here's the thing, if we're honest about it, 
What shocks us is not what shocked Paul. Paul was shocked about a moral man in the church, but actually we got quite used to that. Our, our, our newspapers unfortunately tell us, don't they, about priests doing this and ministers doing that and this happening, that scandal. We're quite used to that sort of stuff going on. What we're not used to is the notion that we should do anything about it. And in fact, one of the problems that this whole language of this passage immediately begins to, 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 to feel strange to us is it seems to go so much against the spirit of our 21st century age, doesn't it? We're supposed to be tolerant. We're supposed to be people who, who live and let live in this age. Judging people, that's narrow-minded. And all of those sort of images of our age come across to this, and we think how this sits, condemning and judging and expelling and excommunicating. This isn't what we do. And as I was struggling with this this week about how on earth this related to today's society, something happened. Another institution. Another institution with a man in it. Another institution that is proud, BBC, and respectable. And what's it been doing? turning a blind eye to immorality right in the heart of things. And suddenly, as I begin to look at this, this institution that has seen this powerful man doing things that are wrong and has just not done anything about it, and we've been here before, haven't we? I'm left thinking, maybe this passage has something to say to us. Because suddenly, when Paul says, purge the evil man from among you, it doesn't seem an unreasonable rant from some sort of religious fundamentalist. It begins to be the very thing that we might say to the BBC. So obvious that what an institution has to do when it has that sort of behavior going among it is to say a public, equivocable, no! No! to unrestrained male sexuality. Did we not learn this? That actually, that whole notion that we sometimes have, live and let live, say nothing, judge nobody, turn a blind eye, pay no attention, it's not your business, has consequences. A few years ago, we had the whole Me Too movement. What was that about? It was about the fact that lots of people were turning a blind eye to things going on around them that were self-evidently wrong. So, silence won't do. Let's go back and have a think then about the background to this in the Corinthian letter, because maybe this has something to teach us today. To start with a few words, the church in Corinth was a brand new church. And that's really, really important because not only was it a brand new church where nobody said what churches say with, we've never done that before, nobody could, but it wasn't just a brand new church, it was in a brand new generation. It wasn't even as if people could say, well, Christians do this or Christians do that because there hadn't been any Christians before. Everybody's working this out for the first time. What does it mean to be part of a church? What does it mean to be a member? What does it mean to relate to other Christians? What does all this do? 
And there are some things that the Corinthian church were, were getting absolutely right. Paul begins his letter by saying, you, you're full of, of, of the Holy Spirit, you're full of wisdom, you're full of things that you've learned about Jesus, and, and, and the preaching that we have given you, I've given you, Apollos has given you, it's borne fruit, you're growing, it's great. But as you read the letter, what you begin to pick up from it, and I hope you have read the letter, if you haven't, go and read it right through, is that this church has failed particularly in the area of how it relates to each other. Let me give you a few examples. We've seen already they were dividing into factions, weren't they? One person saying, I'm a Peter follower. One person saying, I'm a Paul follower. One person saying, Apollos is a better preacher. And somebody else going, oh, I'm a real Christian. You know, all that sort of division that's going on. And then we'll find out in the next chapter that some of them are, are suing each other. And we find out in chapter 11 that Paul criticizes their, their behavior. They're coming together um, for a meal, the Lord's Supper, and, and some of them are, are going out drunk, and some of them are going out hungry. What type of fellowship is this? Imagine going through to the, the cup of tea afterwards, uh, and, and cakes are served, and, uh, and, and some folk go out absolutely stuffed because they got offered all the best cakes and the wine and everything else, and somebody else had come having had nothing for breakfast and was given nothing. That's what's going on in the Corinthian church. And there's other things going on. Paul, later on, will talk about they're using gifts in worship, and that's great, but it seems to be a bit of a rammy where everybody's doing their own thing and wanting their own way, and they're not actually loving each other. And, and then we'll find all sorts of things that are wrong in the Corinthian church. And it's into that that Paul uses a very strong metaphor later in the, in the letter where he says, you're supposed to be a body you're supposed to be one in Jesus. You're supposed to care for each other that when one is, is it, things are happening that are good to one, everybody's rejoicing in that. And when things are happening that are bad to one, everybody's feeling that. So, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5 and what's happening. Well, we'd really like to know the details, wouldn't we? of what this guy's up to and what the relationships are. But Paul's writing Scripture. He's not, a, he's not a journalist for the Daily Mail. So, we don't get all the sordid details. We just get the bare bones. There's a guy, and he's having a relationship probably with his stepmother. It's a scandal. And it's, it's not even that this is a sort of gray area of morality where Christians have different views. Paul says this is a sort of relationship that even people who don't believe know is wrong. Now, we don't need to know the details, but what Paul says is, I'm hearing things about this. It's a scandal, and yet you're coming to church, and you think your church is great, and you're all puffed up with all your wisdom and your knowledge and your spiritual gifts. Now, why is what's going on here? Well, some of the commentators on this think that the Corinthians are puffed up because of this. They actually think this is good. You know, he, here's us. We don't, we, we are Christians and we don't have to pay attention to moral law and we can do what we want. But I actually think that what's probably going on here is, is slightly different. It's just that the Corinthians have adopted a spirit of individualism. This guy's doing stuff and it might well be that they shake their heads and they tuck behind his back and they sort of point the finger a wee bit. But fundamentally, people think, this has got nothing to do with me. This is not my business. 
and I don't need to get involved with it. I don't need to fall out with them. I don't need to have an argument. I can just go on with my spiritual gifts and the power of the Spirit, and this has nothing to do with how brilliant our church is. It's just not relevant. You know that question that's asked right in the beginning of Genesis when Cain and Abel on the murder, am I my brother's keeper? And that's a huge question for ethics and for our society today because what it basically says is what he's doing is not my business, it doesn't affect me, and I don't want to care. Well, Paul in this chapter is clearly saying, yes, you are your brother's keeper. I want to very quickly look at three things that Paul is really saying as he goes through this with them. The first thing is that Paul is reminding them that the church is holy, and then he'll remind them that the church is a body, and then he'll remind them that because of that, the church has to act. It's a holy, it's a body, and it has to act. First of all, you know, right from the beginning, Paul said, the church of God in Corinth, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be His holy people, together with those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord. These are people who are supposed to be living changed lives. Becoming a Christian isn't just being forgiven of your sins, that you can have a relationship with God. Becoming a Christian is that you become part of a people who are being transformed by the Holy Spirit, that you might live in a different way, just like Israel was called to live in a different way, to be salt and light. You might have had an old life, the way you used to live, but as you follow Jesus, you're living a different way. Now, you'll not always get that right. That's why there is forgiveness, and that's why there is the grace of God. We'll often fail as Christians, but fundamentally, we have reorientated our life. That's what being born again means to walk and to move and to be transformed by it. This is really important. To take the example of, of, of sexuality here, and it's only one example that we might take. Roman society, um, well, to cut it mildly, its attitude to, to sex was, if you were strong, and you were male, and you were powerful, you could. That's basically the way it worked. This is a slave society. That meant that strong, powerful men had slaves, and the law said you could do what you wanted. I don't mean just practically you could do what you wanted. That was the law, and nobody could stop you. When the Romans invaded a country, there's lots of civilizing things that we talk about with the Roman Empire, it's a mixed bag, but when they invaded a country, they took prisoners and made them slaves and put them in their homes and their farms, and they did what they wanted, and that was the law. What changed that? What was it that transformed Western society away from a model which in terms of male sexuality said, if you've got it and you've got power, it's fine? What changed that to where we are today? 
And the historians will tell you, and there's a whole lot of books on this at the moment that are really exploring this back, that it wasn't that Christianity came along and it had a repressed idea of sexuality, which is what we've been told. It was actually that Christianity came along and transformed this because it said to individuals, you have a responsibility, men, for how you live your sexual lives. You have a responsibility. It wasn't that the, the Christians came along and, and put guilt trips and, and, and finger-wagging at people. It was that they came along and created a community, a holy community, where people lived differently where people valued family, where people looked after children, where people respected marriage, and that was attractive. And that influenced the whole load of society. Now, the church has sometimes, very often, not lived by those standards. It's got it really, really wrong. But we shouldn't underestimate the power of that. It wasn't waging a culture war and having an argument. It was living and demonstrating a different way to live. I mean, for instance, one of the things that, that Romans did, this isn't in the sexual sphere, but in the family sphere, is if, if a woman had a child, her husband had to own it. That means he had to pick up the child when it was born. And if the husband picked up the child, that was then his child, his responsibility and part of the family. And if the husband didn't, the child could be taken outside and exposed which meant the child was left on the rubbish heap to die unless somebody came along and said, I'll take her out and bring her up as a slave. Christians didn't go around and campaign to change the law to get that banned. They just went out and picked up the children. And that's time and time again what happened that transformed society. The church began to live holy lives in a different way until pagans were saying, not, oh, they banned the, t the pagan temples, but why is nobody going to the pagan temple anymore? I, I loved a few years ago where the Archbishop of Canterbury was talking about the offense of the payday loan companies and all they were doing. And other people were saying we should ban these folk. And the Archbishop of Canterbury just said that he wanted the church to set up credit unions to drive them out of business. We're going to live and model a different way that's going to transform society, not by waging a culture war, not by passing laws to ban things, but principally by how we live. And that's what it means for us to be a holy people. That's what the church is supposed to be, living differently to demonstrate a different way to live. And this isn't just in the sexual sphere, by the way. Paul goes on in this passage to say that we are to live in such a way that we get rid among ourselves of slander and drunkenness and swindling and every type of deceit and evil. Now, again, of course, the church is full of broken people. We get this wrong. There needs to be forgiveness at the heart of what we do. But there's also a model of being a transforming people. And that's why Paul will say in this passage later, it's no business of mine to judge those outside we judge those inside. What that really means is this. As Christians, we are not called to go out shouting at people who don't believe you should be living by Christian standards. Rather, we are called to live them and show them and demonstrate them. And that is how we transform the world, not by standing with placards saying, ban this, ban that, war this, war that. The church is to be holy. 
And second, the church is to be a body. Paul says the Corinthians should be filled and turned to grief and not proud. I wonder that some of them might have said, well, I'm not the one that's doing that. Why should I be ashamed? Nothing to do with me. Why should I feel bad and, and, and mourn and, and be sad and, and ashamed of this? I'm not the one that's living with my mother-in-law or whatever it was. But Paul isn't like the teacher who says, well, I'm going to punish the whole class because of something somebody else has done. That's not fair. But rather, we're back to that passage where he said, if one part suffer, all suffer with it. The church is to be a body. You are your brother's keeper. And that's a huge lesson in our day and age of individuality, where we often say it's all about me and God, and it's not really about you. Rather, we are to be together. How many folk here are members of a, a bowling club or a, 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 a golf club or, or a, a swimming club or, or uh, a bingo club or, or some sort of uh, enjoyment club. How many folk have been, or some point in life, have been involved in that? Quite a few folk. Here's the thing. If you join a golf club, you join it to play golf, don't you? That's the purpose. Now, it might well be that as you're playing golf, uh, your biggest concerns are, are the greens tended? Is the, is the course straight? Do I have fun here? you probably don't think too much about the other members. As long as there's somebody to play with and there's a friendly person there, that's great. But if there are some members who don't play well uh, and one or two who leave the clubhouse and some who don't come back, it doesn't affect you. As long as you can play your golf, it's fine. And sometimes we treat the church a little bit like that, like it was a club. I come along, and as long as we sing the hymns I like, and, and the sermon's good for me, and that's absolutely fine, and if, if, if other folk are, you know, how, that doesn't really matter to me, as long as there's somebody to be friendly, and that's fine. But actually, we are called to be concerned for one another. You know, it's an absolute disgrace that in the average parish church, half of our members play no part in the life of the church. Do you think that's a disgrace? Do you? Here's a bigger disgrace, that the other half so often do nothing about it. We are called to be a body, but sometimes that individualism of the world has taken over. We're not a golf club. We're a team, and it matters how others play. We practice together. We give constructive individual, uh, we give constructive criticism together. We build each other up. That's what it's all about. We work together. I, I love the fact our Church of Scotland safeguarding uh, policy isn't about a bunch of people in Edinburgh who are, who are there to keep us safe. It actually says this. It says, it says, the gospel proclaims it's the responsibility of everyone within the fellowship of the church to prevent harm, be it physical, sexual, emotional, and we always seek to reduce risk. Whose responsibility is it to make sure our church is safe for our children? Is it Linda Simpson's because she's our child protection coordinator? No, it's yours. If you see something that's not right or a child that's been treated improperly, your responsibility to speak up. Well, that's what happened when we took our baptismal vows. Whose responsibility is it to make sure this church welcomes people who come in for the first time? 
Is it the people on the doors or the welcoming committee or the Kirk session? No, it's yours. Did you turn around and talk to the person behind you? Did you say to them, come and have coffee with me? Did you invite them after a few weeks to, to come and have a meal with you? That's what it means to be a welcoming church. What does it mean to be a church that, that loves people and looks after people and visits people? Is that about the minister who should have done that or, or the, the visiting committee or, or whatever else it is? No. It's about you. It's about one another. You know, sometimes that it's as simple as that. We are the church. When I love or you love or I visit or I welcome, that's the church welcoming. There isn't anything else. This is for us. And the last thing is the church should be a disciplinary, disciplining church. You know, if we have a notion of discipleship, then we have a notion of discipline. These two things go together. Yet, discipline is often a bad word. We imagine those days where the preacher said from the pulpit, you know, you. I, I've been in churches and heard of churches where, where, where the children aren't behaving, and the minister from the pulpit said, loose children should be behaving, and those people don't come back. Or we've got those, those stories about the, the stool that they used to put at the front in the Presbyterian past and make people sit on. No, that's not what it's about at all. But it is about taking responsibility for others. People will say, don't judge lest you be judged. But that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus didn't mean, well, we're all individuals, just leave everybody alone to live their own life and don't care about them. It's the last thing He meant. He meant don't feel superior. Don't be gossiping behind people's back to put them down to make yourself feel good. And we're often good at that. But He did mean that we would be building each other's up. Now, this isn't about coming down hard on someone who's done something wrong. But it is particularly where someone is persisting in something that's wrong, being willing to call it out, being willing to speak to them. I also notice in what Paul says here, and this is a really hard passage. We don't know what this means, actually, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But what we do know is the last bit, that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The purpose of calling folk out the purpose of speaking up is not that we talk behind people's backs. It's actually that we win people back, that we help people live the way that they should be living so that they can be walking in step with the Spirit of God. And that's what this is all about. But here's the question. When someone is doing something that's wrong, is my response to talk about them behind their back? Or is my response to find a way to help them move back into a place with Jesus? And by the way, the other side of that is, when I'm not living the life that I should live, am I open to my brothers and sisters coming to me and saying, Alistair, can we help? Because that is what it is to live as the body of Christ and not just as a bunch of individuals in a club. May God give us a church that is full of His love, a church that is holy, forgiving, gracious, and loving, where one part cares that the other part flourishes in the Lord Jesus Christ. For that church will transform the world.